Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's very first road trip radio show with Nancy and Lisa. As many of you know, uh, we are the crazy mother-daughter travel team. We travel full-time across the country documenting parks and public lands. And we do this while we publish uh, all kinds of Big Blend magazines, all digital, produce our podcasts, our Big Blend radio shows, and also we pet sit across the country. Um, Not for money. It's, It's really just this cool way of traveling and getting ingrained in the different communities. We do that all through trusted house sitters. So if you're a pet parent or a traveler, check it out. It's pretty darn cool. It's been fun. Um, But, you know, we keep saying we need to do two different shows, road trip radio, because a lot of our radio parties, we do take a virtual road trip. So like now it's time to make it official. The other thing is to do rest area radio because we, we stop at rest areas and we people watch. And that's a whole other thing. So watch for that. That's coming. <laughs> we may actually have to start doing that in video. But anyway, I'm very excited to kick off this new show. It's going to air every fourth Monday. And, you know, to kick this off, we're excited. It's June, um, it, you know, to kick it off in June when everybody's out starting to plan their road trips, which you shouldn't over plan, by the way. You should let some spontaneity. Just let happen. it happen. Yeah, let some stuff happen. Um, but summer is road trip season, and I do wish we had a station wagon. I really do. Um, yeah. But uh, so this is perfect timing, but we couldn't even, you know, we can't pick the best guest. This is the best guest to kick it off. Uh, it is Wes Davis. He is joining mm-hmm. us. Uh, he's a historian, a Yale professor, so he knows so much more than us. And he's an author, and his latest book is called American Journey on the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs. Did you know they did that? They did. They went on a road trip. I want to be in the car with them. This is an iconic historic road trip that happened with four American legends in That's August amazing. 1918. So uh, the book is out now through W.W. Norton and Company. So get it wherever you buy books. But welcome to the show, Wes. How are you? Uh, good morning. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm doing well, and I'm excited to talk about road trips. I, I want to give you one correction, though. I'm I'm no longer a Yale professor. That that oh. I left left there about 15 years ago. Oh, and since cool. then I've I've been digging through archives to write write books like this one. Oh my gosh! So you are in the permanent like it's like it's a road trip thing, but it is the world of rabbit holes because even before we <laughs> push right. the record button, I'm like I better stop. I get so excited about this stuff because it is fascinating because it when you follow a trail or a route, mm. all of a sudden a gazillion stories pop so up. Much I mean, you can never. I mean, how did you even finish this book without going off like in twenty thousand different? places <laughs> you know I, uh, it was very easy to get lost and uh mm. you know I, I think digging through archives um tends to take me down paths that I kind of can't get to the end of anyway and this mm. particular story was made for that I mean everywhere Ford and Edison and Burroughs and Harvey Firestone went you know it opens up a whole new sort of field for me to investigate mm. I didn't even know they were friends. I didn't even know Thomas Edison would know about going on a road trip. I had no clue. Yeah, yeah isn't that crazy? Yeah. No, but well, this is, I really want to make it into a movie. It has to be a movie. 
<laughs> it does no. feel it does feel very much like a movie. And you know, strangely enough, uh, the world's first movie star was actually on the trip in 1918. No way. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a very strange story. So as you know, Thomas Edison's laboratory developed motion picture technology. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, it, at the end of the 19th century, when they're beginning to experiment with, you know, the, this technology, they want to make um, a sort of test film. And so they recruit one of the guys who worked in Edison's laboratory. It was a man named Fred Ott. And mm -hmm. he, you know, mm -hmm starred in this little short film in which he basically, I think, takes a pinch of snuff and then sneezes. And, you know, that's that's the film. But uh, it was the first copyrighted film. And so in that sense, he was the first oh. the first American movie star. Oh, so what, what, what was what was his connection to like being that. on a road trip, though? Like, oh, how did so so in 1918, he is actually one of the people Edison uh, sort of recruited from among his employees to um, help with the logistics and drive one of the trucks. So Fred Ott is there on the road trip as kind of a key figure in, you know, getting everything together, getting supplies onto the truck, making sure they have everything they need. Well, this is interesting, too, because what you're saying, you know, even, even in the beginning of the book, I was reading about Burroughs, like he was in his 80s and he's like, dude, this is rough. I need cushions. You, you got cushions. I don't, like and then they're just camping like they're doing this. So, as you know, we host a, a Jefferson Highway show every fourth Thursday. And this is an iconic route uh, started in 1915. So just before this. Right. So this the timing and this is incredible. And um that goes from Winnipeg down to New Orleans. And right now, as we're recording this, it would have been done by the time this airs. They did a, their, it's their annual conference and they're doing it in Mason City, Iowa. And mm -hmm. they did a sociability caravan um, through <laughs> Iowa, which was interesting. They even actually went into Minnesota. And, and I was like, like even hashtags on Instagram don't know what you're talking about. Nobody knows what a sociability caravan is. And their whole thing now is to also put markers where uh, people camped. And I'm looking at some of the places they camped. I'm like, dude, there's alligators out there in Louisiana. They're camping cool. right next to this. Cool. And so they were camping. And sometimes they even one of the the ads for Natchitoches, Louisiana, was offering free gasoline if you camped there. I'm going, that's not happening today. Oh, but, I would do it. You know, but but there's no one's giving you free gas now. But they did back no. then. But so what? Going back to what you're saying with, you know, Ott being one of the truck drivers. So this literally as a road trip was a sociability caravan, right? How they traveled at that in that era with multiple people. Yeah. So there, there are multiple people involved. And, you know, talking about camping, I, I mean, I should back up a little bit to say 1918 is the trip that I that I focus on most in the book. And that's mm. this epic trip uh, in which the those members of the party who live in the midwest ford and firestone and firestone's son harvey jr travel mm. in from firestone's farm in columbiana ohio to pittsburgh uh edison and burroughs travel from west orange where edison lives and where he has his laboratory to pittsburgh and then they go down uh sort of through uh central pennsylvania up over the mountains slice off part of Western Maryland, come down through West Virginia, Southwest Virginia, and then Tennessee and North Carolina up into the Smoky Mountains. Uh, so that's the focus of the book. But 
uh, this story really starts in, in 1912, and I follow a whole series of trips. Ford mm -hmm. and Burroughs travel up to Concord, Massachusetts. Uh, but then, and this is connected to your uh, story of camping in Louisiana, um, Ford, Burroughs, and Edison get together at Edison's house. It's called Seminole Lodge down in Fort Myers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're there for a couple of weeks. And at a certain point, Edison decides that he wants to like give them a sort of deeper experience of Florida. Edison always wants to get into more rugged terrain. You know, when they're traveling by road, he wants to get on the worst roads. And That's so right. in 1914, he arranges for Ford and Burroughs to join him. And, and in this instance, their families go along too. Ford's wife, Clara, um, Edison's wife, Mina, and two of his children. And they go out into the Everglades, um, cool. at first driving on roads, but you know, the Everglades is, is mm -hmm. a completely undeveloped area at this time. And so eventually the roads disappear. They're sort of skimming over shallow lakes, you know, just mm -hmm. sort of hoping that the bottom doesn't drop out. And they, uh, set up camp next to a kind of deep water lake out in the Everglades. And it, I mean, it's remarkable. You know, there's all kinds of wildlife around. Mm -hmm. um, Burroughs is hoping that he'll hear a, a a cougar sort of growling or panther growl as he puts cool. it um and this just becomes a kind of comedy of errors when a storm rolls in knocks down their tents uh everyone <laughs> winds up sleeping in you know puddles that are quickly turning into lakes uh so they definitely had some, some of the experience uh, you're talking about yeah wow cool. but but that's amazing how cool. they they were camping at that in those days and we had this you know you know when we were in one spot, we've been on the road for a long time now, but we have this amazing uh, black and white photo collection of, uh, it's done through Turner Publishing, I believe, uh, historic mm -hmm. photos of different communities. It's a big coffee table book size. And I remember the one for Tucson where we, we were based before we started traveling. You could see people out there with their Model T Fords in the middle of what is now Saguaro National Park for a picnic. And you see these women in these formal dress, well, like dresses, you know, crazy, huh? with, you know, parasols and they're sitting amongst cactus and I'm going, <laughs> I know exactly where the rattlesnake, have, uh, you know, haven is there and that exact that spot. I know where they uh, live yeah. and you're, you're sitting in rest right rattlesnake country and you have a Model T Ford kind of thing going on. This is insane. It's, it's just trippy to think of it now where now we have to have the correct wheels and four-wheel drive and we must now make sure that our backpacks have this and we have the right camping stove whereas back then they kind of they really did they rough it, did it you know they just yeah. did it they well, did it, it in fact one so one of the stories i tell this is sort of the inspiration for uh i, I think road tripping uh for ford and edison is that in 1915 when ford and edison are traveling out to the panama pacific exposition in san francisco uh, they go by train, but that same summer, their children or two of their children, Ford's son, Edsel, and uh, Edison's son, Theodore, independently uh, and separately travel out to the fair in Model Ts. And, mm -hmm. you know, so they're they're going through extremely rugged and remote country and, you know, roads are very primitive. And at one point, Edison's, or I'm sorry, um, Edsel's party is camped in i think i think somewhere in arizona and they realize in the middle of the night that they have set up their tent 
on top of a tarantula nest. Oh, and so wow. that, you know, they're awakened wow. in the night by spiders everywhere. Ah. And they abandon the tent and go and, and sleep in their cars, oh, which are not much more protective. You know, the Model T is completely open vehicle, but uh, that's the kind of travel you, you could expect at that time. I, I wanted to touch in on, on Roosevelt, too, uh -huh. because he also, you know, was known Teddy Roosevelt went to Africa a lot as this big, mm -hmm. you know, the great white hunter, which I'm not into, yeah. but, you know, that that's what he did. Um, and I wonder about, you know, the the history of it all. I'm trying to now I have I need to like do a time chart or something. But when I think about how, you know, Yosemite, Yellowstone, and and you think about John Muir and him having that famous meeting in Yellowstone, yeah. I mean in Yosemite, um, you think about that and and you know, you think John Muir was a vegan, here's Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the great pine hunter. They have to camp under the stars. And you think about, you know, there's historic photos of, you know, these cars being out there and trains were a huge way of um, artists getting around and they had to transport like huge paintings across the country for people to see these landscapes, you know? And now yeah. I think about Africa and that's our, mm -hmm. our background is, you know, Kenya, South Africa, a little bit of Mexico and England. And when we were in Kenya and South Africa, you know, overland, you know, safaris were obviously, you know, it's a way of life. It's part of life, but the overland travel um, through the entire continent was so popular way back when, um, you know, the colonials did it. <laughs> so I'm wondering mm -hmm. about the timing of these road trips, since America is actually the first, you know, place to form the National Park Service, and then Africa followed. Um, but people are still exploring pre-parks, right? So I wonder about that connection. America yeah. starts the National Park Service, then Africa and everywhere, Australia, and you know everybody start England starts catching on to do it but i'm thinking about the road trip and the overland driving being connected to these road trips and and roosevelt and I, you know i'm just kind of thinking about how that probably ties in somewhere in history yeah well so you know, i mean I this this certainly links up with john burroughs um burroughs mm -hmm. right. uh, traveled with teddy roosevelt out to yosemite uh, i think right after it became a park and uh, I get, actually, I should back up because po it's possible that listeners won't really know much about John Burroughs. So let right. everybody knows Ford and Edison, but let me just say that, uh, so Burroughs, as you mentioned earlier, is a considerably older man, uh, a nature writer and essayist. At the time of the 1918 trip, he was 81. Um, so he's yeah. just about a qu quarter of mm -hmm. a century older than Henry Ford. And mm -hmm. when Ford and Burroughs met, which is in, uh, at, or they make contact at the end of 1912, and we, we can talk about how that happens later if you'd like, but mm -hmm. um, at that time, uh, Burroughs is, you know, among the most popular writers in the country. He's got a couple of dozen books out, and he, uh, he's writing in periodicals all the time. I mean, his essays are, he's a very prolific writer. His essays are sort of constantly showing up, so everyone knows who John Burroughs is. And he's especially loved by school children because a number of his essays, you know, I guess maybe in part because they're on sort of wholesome topics. They're about nature, about bird life, um, about his travels with people like Teddy Roosevelt. Those essays are included in readers that are used in school systems throughout the country. And mm. so in the early 20th century, wherever Burroughs went, you know, school children would sort of line up to 
see him like and they would want to know you know what's what's the great john burroughs writing writing now um but his roots go back into the middle of the 19th century he's born in 1837 i think which is just about the time emerson ralph waldo emerson who's sort of the you know foundational figure of american literature this, this great mm-hmm. transcendentalist philosopher and essayist uh, this is just about the time Emerson is writing and publishing his first collection of essays. And that sort of model, the transcendentalist model of Emerson influences mm. Burroughs really deeply so that when Burroughs publishes his first major essay, uh, I think in 1886 in the Atlantic Monthly, it's an essay called Expression. He sends it in and the editor of the Atlantic reads it, thinks this is great. And his second thought is, this is plagiarized from Emerson. So he actually contacts Emerson, you know, to make sure this isn't uh, one of his essays. Emerson says, no, but you know, this is great. (laughs) It's very much like my work. So it's published. And in that period, uh, articles in the Atlantic were published anonymously. And so uh, everyone assumed that this was by Emerson. And in Poole's Index, which was this this kind of catalog of periodical literature at the time, it was actually listed as a work by Emerson. Uh, wow. So that tells you something about, you know, where Burroughs's roots are. But after that essay came out and, and after this kind of confusion about, you know, whether this was by Emerson, Burroughs realizes that he wants to create his own style. And mm. what ultimately distinguishes him from people like Emerson is that he focuses much more closely on the actual details of the natural world, you know, what mm-hmm. wildlife is really doing, what, what plant life really looks like. And so when his second book came out, uh, uh, Henry James, you know, the great novelist, reviews it, and he says that this new young writer is a more humorous and sociable Thoreau. So, you know, that's Burroughs. Wow. And, and uh you know, that reputation is what puts him in touch with people like Teddy Roosevelt. They wind up traveling together. And it's exactly the paradox you were pointing to with John Muir, because mm. Burroughs is very much a, you know, a, I mean, he he does hunt, he hunts woodchucks, but, you know, he he's not the great white hunter that Teddy Roosevelt wants to be. So they're out uh, in the wilderness. Mm. And what they wind up doing is trying to identify bird calls. Mm. And they bond over this. And it turns out that Teddy Roosevelt, they have a kind of contest and Teddy Roosevelt only loses by one species to mm. Burroughs, who's kind of the foremost bird expert in, in the country. Wow. Yeah, because I That's think he so wasn't weird. he a, even the head of Audubon and Audubon was a hunter too, by the way. I'm <laughs> just going to bring that out to people that he was a hunter. I mean, it took yeah. a while for Audubon to kind of realize well, the... You know, when you say tribe. hunter, are you talking about um, somebody who feeds their family by there, there's fe- yeah, there's there's hunting for the pot, and then there's for trophy, trophy, yeah, to stick on a wall. Teddy yeah. did. Teddy Roosevelt did trophy hunting. He did. Right. He was. That's that's what I. You know. Yeah. Then there's, I think Burroughs and Audubon probably did it, and Audubon shot birds too, more for yep. the pot. And I think <laughs> you know now we look at conservationism and you know, a lot of times the hunters are the ones who actually know the land better than the environmentalists saying, just saying, because they're out there watching and doing. Mm -hmm. And um, 
anyway, it's very controversial. Mm. We don't have to get into that right now. But, well, <laughs> but I will just say that observant. In, they're observant. Yeah. In, in the case of Burroughs, he was a farmer. I mean, he continued yeah. to make mm. his living as a farmer. And so uh, woodchucks were a problem, you know, for yeah. the farmer. And so he was <laughs> in a kind of constant war against them. Uh, I only know this sort of from information about burrows, but apparently a woodchuck is not particularly palatable, um, you know, you creature. You can't eat it, yeah. But, but burrows did eat them, and I think it's because he ah. didn't like the idea of destroying, you yeah, know, wasting. a living creature. And so he came up with very elaborate ways to cook um, to cook woodchuck to make them it's to make them rats. Yeah. It's a big rat. <laughs> but no, listen, listen, I, I know you know um, that one portion of Tennessee. We were in Johnson City. We did a pet sit out there. And our pet sit became, we had, we were taking care of three dogs. And one was a Boston Terrier that you don't mess with. And Boston Terrier went after, no, excuse me, not a, a Boston Terrier, a Frenchie, went after the woodchuck. Oh, the French And the woodchuck dogs. was stealing yeah. eggs from the chickens. Oh, and our life became... Bad. I actually had to, I picked, I saved the woodchuck from the dogs. The dogs got the woodchuck. I saved the woodchuck. And then we figured out how to, we, we played farm and fixed things so that woodchuck couldn't steal eggs. Um, Cause we thought the dogs were stealing the eggs, but no, it was the woodchuck and the woodchuck was heading next door. It's really, I mean, life is interesting Funny. on farms, man. And I think it's interesting because it's almost a closed circuit. You're in the same area watching. You start to, as an observer like Burroughs, start to watch, okay, the woodchuck, here's where the family is. Here's where the bird family mm -hmm. is. Here's what this is. They, over uh, like two to three years, you can really observe the family arc of each, you know, the web of life going on in your backyard. But then when you travel, man, it's like you don't, you, you're getting glimpses of it. And you have to be a very fast and deep observer to try and get the knowledge you have from being in one place like you would on a farm. So it's interesting about his travels, especially with Roosevelt, uh, having those nature parts of it all. Yeah. Uh, well, the observancy. You know, so Burroughs is the only member of this traveling party, Ford, Edison, Burroughs, and Firestone. He, he's the only one to continue to make a living as a farmer, as an adult, but all of them grew up on farms. Yeah. And in a way, that's the thing that is the, I think the fuel for the these road trips or it's the it's nostalgia for farm life that mm -hmm. um first of all puts uh Ford in touch with Burroughs. So uh in nineteen twelve, um the Model T has been out about four years and it's incredibly successful. You know, Ford is is selling them as fast as he can possibly produce them. But mm -hmm. Uh, so he's in his late 40s at this point, and he's becoming as, you know, as he becomes more and more successful as an automaker, he's becoming more and more nostalgic for life that he knew on the farm in Dearborn when he was a boy. Sure. And so one of the ways this manifests itself is that he becomes obsessed with this particular uh, moment in his childhood. And it's he thinks of it as his earliest memory. And he he actually writes this down in a little pocket notebook. And I would say that Ford was not a writer and you know you don't find that much writing from him mm. but he wrote down this memory uh from a time when he was about four years old and his father came and found him in the farmhouse took him out into the fields uh, i think he's actually carrying ford's younger brother who's a couple of years younger um and they go out to a place in the field where a, a huge oak tree has fallen 
And his father mm -hmm. has young Henry bend down and look at this log and shows him that there's a, a nest, that a song mm -hmm. sparrow has made a nest there and left some eggs. And mm -hmm. Ford, you know, all the way 40 years later, uh, more than 40 years later, could remember this yeah. moment and could remember the song of the sparrow. Mm -hmm. And so for him, birds became this kind of link in later life to his agrarian childhood on the farm. And I think that's what got him interested in Burroughs. So he's reading yeah. Burroughs' books. Clara Ford uh, gave Henry a um, full set of Burroughs' works. I think it would maybe a 20 volume set or something at that point. And so this is one of the few writers that Ford actually read. So he thinks of Burroughs as his favorite writer. And then it late in 1912, he comes across some articles in, in which Burroughs is saying that the automobile uh, is not kind of a path to wisdom, <laughs> uh, that you know it's likely to destroy nature. It, mm -hmm. it hampers our appreciation yeah. of nature because it carries us through the landscape too quickly. And so Ford, as you can imagine, disagrees with this, but he gets in touch with Burroughs and offers to send him a Model T to try to change his mind. And mm -hmm. Burroughs sort of reluctantly agrees. And at the beginning of 1913, a Model T shows up at Burroughs' farm at Roxbury cool. up on the Hudson. And that's the beginning of all of this. Wow. It's and this so is cool. Yeah, because you think about these guys you've got Firestone and 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 Ford knows how to do stuff too, and oh, Ford yes. is an interesting interesting lesson in business. And he was, you know, we we look at corporate America now versus what, you know, Henry Ford would. I think he would shake his stick. I would think he would take Teddy Roosevelt's you know bully stick and shake it right now with what's mm -hmm. going on in the world, um, because he was pro his employees. He was one of the first people, mm -hmm. him and Carnegie, that said. And there's, you know, negative stuff on him too. I mean, no one's perfect, but was for like, if you want to, you know, get your employees to really work, give them a bonus. You know, you've got to give them something. You've got to keep them inspired. You've got to take care of them. And um, so there's all kinds of things on all of that, yeah. but I find it interesting to have him, Firestone, Burroughs and Edison. So we have scientists, we have inventors, we have business people, we have naturalists all together with extreme different personalities and as we all know you go on a road trip across the country and you think you like someone you'll find out by the end of the road trip <laughs> yeah by the end you find out <laughs> like in the first hour <laughs> you're yeah. like uh oh yeah road trips are personal yeah. and how you handle it and then i'm going these cars were not like what we have now you know oh yeah yeah but how much fun come on well, just, I mean, to, just to, uh, to pick ahead. up, I'm sorry, to pick up what you're saying about Ford paying his employees, I, I think that, you know, the his famous announcement in, in 1914 of the $5 workday, mm. uh, that was the biggest benefit for labor, you know, in history up to that point. And it, it basically doubled the going rate for mm. a day's work. And at the same time, Ford shrank the workday from nine hours to eight. You know, so yeah. this is like, he really is, is, um, is giving um, a better deal to his employees. And I make the case in the, in the book that that is actually uh, something that comes out of these, these road trips, or it, it comes out of Ford's um, friendship with Burroughs and the first road trip they take together, which I think I'm, maybe I mentioned before is up to Concord, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you know, Burroughs had received the Model T and to his surprise, he found that it, it, he did sort of enjoy some of the benefits it gave him that he could get out into the countryside and see, you know, more of nature in an afternoon than, than he could at his mm -hmm. age then if he were just walking. And so Burroughs in 1914, or, or sorry, later in 1913, wants uh, to come out to visit. Uh, Ford wants to come out to visit Burroughs and Burroughs wants to give him something, you know, that's sort of uh, to, to um, compensate for the car he's just, he's just received from Ford. So he takes Ford up to Concord and shows him Emerson's house. They go out to Walden Pond, you know, where Thoreau mm -hmm. had lived. Um, and Ford becomes really fascinated by Emerson. Mm -hmm. And he writes to a friend after this and says that, um, that Burroughs gave me Emerson. And he begins reading Emerson and, and especially fixates on the essay Compensation, in which Emerson talks about sort of, you know, fairness in your dealings in the world. And mm. Emerson was kind of responding, uh, reacting against a kind of idea in uh, Protestant uh, religion in New England at the time, which sort of said, mm. good people are are going to suffer in this life and bad people are going to do well, but in the afterlife that will all be compensated. And Emerson mm. said, no, just look at nature. You know, everything yeah. is immediately compensated. I mean, mm -hmm. even at the level of physics, an action has a reaction. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, so he argued that if if there's a great line, the swindler swindles himself. So if yeah. you, if you cheat in your dealings, it's going to affect you immediately in one way or mm -hmm. another. He says, if if the man harvests too much, nature takes out of the man what she puts into his chest, meaning like his treasure, his treasure wow. chest. And like Ford was really sustainability. It, you can't sustain. You keep. Yeah, right. And yeah. this really uh, influenced Ford. And so it's you know that's in the in the late summer of 1913. In December, Ford sees a couple of his workers fighting in the in the, on the factory floor he says they're like trying to to kill beat each other to death he stops mm -hmm. the fight and then he's you know he can't let it go he keeps wondering like why is this happening and what he comes up with is that it's poverty and mm -hmm. that yeah. he plays a role in this and so in january of 1914 he announces he's going to pay five dollars a day and a reporter goes out to the, the factory to talk to ford about this it's a reporter from the Chicago Day Book, uh, which is a was a kind of pro labor um, publication, and she asks Ford, you know, why did you do this? And he says, at that point, it's social justice, and that to me doesn't sound hmm. like Ford's language. So I think maybe the PR department had gotten involved mm -hmm. uh, at that point. But you know, he did want to to sort of pay the workers fairly. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me is that the photo he gives. The reporter to illustrate this article about the five dollar day is a photo that had been taken when Burroughs visited him in Detroit, and they sat in Ford's first vehicle, which was this little sort of spindly mm. thing called the quadricycle. And the photo, the quadricycle didn't have a steering wheel; it had a tiller. Uh, to, mm. to, uh, to I love it. it. <laughs> and so the photo that Ford gave to illustrate the five dollar day showed him sitting in the quadricycle with Burroughs. And it's Burroughs's hand that's on the tiller. And mm. I know I may be making too much of this, but to my mind, that's Ford mm -hmm. signaling that Burroughs and 
and the introduction he gave for it to Emerson is behind the $5 workday. Mm, so wow. a road trip leads to that, that sort of great moment in labor history. It's just it fascinating. Is, that's a funny photo. But but this but this but this <laughs> the history to me of this is what's so fascinating is road trips, these conversations happen. You're seeing something, you're in um, you're all out of your comfort zone. Right. Yeah. And so it's just this free-for-all, and you've got all these these iconic people that are making history every day, making history as they're doing this. And um, about six years ago, we interviewed, um, oh, I'm going to get his name in a second. Um, it's coming. Ah, Mitch Horowitz. He, he at the time was vice president and executive mm. director at Penguin and Penguin Random House. And the book I'm just looking up now is How to Own Your Own Mind. And it was uh, written by Napoleon Hill. And it was like one mm -hmm. of these hidden manuscripts in the Fountain, Napoleon Hill Foundation found it, published it. And it was all these interviews and Ford and Edison were in there. And it was Ford talking about in and Edison. I mean, here they are friends, which I didn't know. <laughs> like, you know, who I, I just had no clue about this, but it was that book for folks too, just to, to add that into this perspective of, you know, because Napoleon Hill was running around. I mean, you've got to think he was road tripping everywhere doing these interviews with mm -hmm. these guys. And, you know, just all of these, you know, this was year, 20 years, 30 years later. Um, but it's fascinating to me how they were looking at things so quickly and making these changes and looking at the greater future. I mean, if they would see what it was now, I, I, I would love to sit down with I all of them now and go on a road trip. And yeah. see, you know, what they think of today and, and, you know, infrastructure too. But how did you find this story and even get all this information about their conversations on their road trips and how they felt in the cars? Um, was it all stories, you know, from the press? Um, but how did, yeah, how did you find this story? It's, it's yeah. amazing. Well, so it was a, a mixture of, of lots and lots of different sources. I, so I first became aware of the story when, Burroughs is somebody I've been interested in for a long time, hmm. and uh, I had I was digging through his correspondence. Um, I sort of you know another kind of obsession of mine is literary correspondence. I love to see mm. you know, writers writing to each other. So I was mm. looking through Burroughs's letters, and I found a letter uh, at the end from the end of 1912, in which Burroughs is writing to a friend of his. And he says, Mr. Ford of automobile fame is a, an admirer of my books, and he wants to send me a, a Model T. And I thought, God, th that's very strange. You know, th there's yeah. nobody I could sort of less associate with auto travel than Burroughs, because I, at that point, I was more uh, focused on his earlier career, you know, when he was a friend of, of Walt Whitman's, for example, and, and friend of Emerson's. And so I dug into this and I found that not only did Ford send him a Model T, but the two became friends and they wound up traveling together. And then that Thomas Edison was a member of the party. And, you know, I thought like this is this story is sort of made for me because, I mean, as you mentioned the, at the beginning, I spent my earlier life as an academic. So I spent 10 years in graduate school uh, getting a PhD and then 10 years another 10 years um, as an English professor. And in all of that time, I wrote about writers. But as yeah. my sort of term in my last job 
came to a close, I realized that I wanted to write for a broader audience. And I had already started writing for newspapers and things like that. And it turned out that the step in that direction for me uh, was to write about writers who had escaped from the library or escaped from the study and were out in the world doing some something more adventurous. And so my, my first book was about a group of British scholars, uh, classicists and um, archeologists who, because they had studied ancient Greek, uh, which gave them a kind of leg up in learning modern Greek, uh, were recruited by the British army in World War II to serve as commandos in Greece during the, the Nazi occupation of Greece. Mm. Wow. And that, you know, that was an amazing thing to work on because you have this, this incredible sort of spy story. Mm. They actually kidnapped the German general who commanded the oh. division that occupied Crete and they kind of got him up over the mountains and off the island and he was taken to Cairo, which was the British base in the region. Um, wow. but, so they're doing all those things, but they're writers. And so like the stuff, you know, the reports they're sending are just, like incredible. And when I found this story, I realized that this, this had very much the same shape. You know, you have Burroughs keeping a journal about all of this. Um, and you have Ford and Edison who are not writers, but they're people that we, you know, primarily know about for their intellectual accomplishments. But this whole group is then getting out into the world and having an adventure that we would not associate with mm. them at a time when, you know, the, the world is really changing and the, mm. the kind of adventure they're having is just becoming possible for the first time in history. Mm. That's amazing. And and when you're, mm. you know, researching this and putting it together, because it's really, it's it's character driven, you know, it is. Yeah. Um, and and model t ford driven too huh? <laughs> uh, to in but it's interesting because they do go they go out into the blue ridge mountains smoky mountains mm -hmm. area um which is iconic you know and beautiful but um i wanted to ask you as a writer because you are an amazing writer you get us immediately you're mm -hmm. in you, you're in you it. are an amazing yeah, storyteller for history which oh, is you, to man. me very it's 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 crucial that we have storytellers for history so it's um not this dull thing that uh youth that don't want to learn history or class. even adults it's really not even an age no, thing they should, it just... put a, they should put historic novels into history class yeah i know but this Instead is a true story textbook. right but yeah you read, you read you feel like you're reading a novel and that's you know full of life it's like wow you know this is it really happened, you know, and, and so I think it's so crucial for writers like you to be in our world um, to educate and remind us all that history is about stories. And once you realize that, then everything's a rabbit hole. And I love rabbit holes, <laughs> as you know. Right. But I wanted I wanted to ask you about writing, because here dealing with Burroughs, you've got Thoreau, Emerson, right? Did any of them kind of you know, did you get kind of stuck in their writing as writers and kind of go, oh, I, I got a, any lessons from them that you you took home from this experience? Uh, you know, I don't. I, well, I will just say that I agree with you that history needs to have that that narrative element, you know, that storytelling mm. is I mean, there are different kinds of history, you know. So when I was writing about uh, the war in Crete, I realized I'm not a military historian, so I can't write that kind of book mm -hmm. that you know is about this unit moves uh, to this position and they fortify mm -hmm. you know I, I can't write that way but what I could do was tell stories 
Mm. Um, and I really enjoy uh, digging into the archives to get enough up close information to be able to tell stories. Uh, so, I mean, I was in, I think I was influenced by Burroughs in the sense that although I already liked him reading his journal, I just came to love him. You know, I, um, and you know, he, on the actual trips, he's often moaning. I mean, I think you pointed out that he complains about the, you know, being bounced around on the roads and mm. the, the kind of famous moment about that is when he, he points to Edison and says, well, of course you don't mind this because you're all cushiony. Um, but but you know, <laughs> Edison was sort of the stout figure at this point and Burroughs, you know, weighed 120 or 130 pounds. And so he had no cushioning. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he, he didn't always on the trips make himself lovable, but his journal certainly makes him lovable. And, you know, so I really absorbed, I think, a lot of his view of the world. And um, I, some of the things that are kind of difficult to handle in the book you know, Ford has a kind of increasing level of anti-Semitism through this, through this period. Mm. And when I initially found this story, I thought, well, maybe I don't want to write about Henry Ford, you know, because that was one of the mm -hmm. things I knew people would associate with him. Mm -hmm. um, but first of all, I came to see much more of Ford and found that he's this incredibly complicated, fascinating uh, kind of figure. And I also found that I could look at something like the anti-Semitism through Burroughs's eyes and it would really give us not a way of understanding it because I don't think Burroughs understood it and historians don't understand it. It doesn't really seem to fit with Ford's character, um, but at least I could see it from the outside, you know, mm. and, and deal with it again as a story uh, in Burroughs, you know, reacting to it rather than sort of trying to, to treat it in the way a conventional historian might. It could have been brought up that way by his parents. Could be. Could uh, be handed down. That you know, way. I, think, I think part of it had to do with the fact that, as I said before, Ford was a farm boy. Mm -hmm. And he became successful because he was obsessively interested in one thing, which is uh, the internal combustion engine and the way it could be applied, you know, to mm -hmm. creating an automobile. And when he became successful, a lot of people became involved in his business who were there not because they were obsessed with that technology, but because they wanted to make money. And so, mm -hmm. you know, all through his early career, he had investors whom he needed, you know, he needed financial help to get started, but they would then push him in directions that he didn't believe yeah. were, were the way to go. And so, you know, just to take one example, some of the early investors wanted him to produce um, uh, a bigger, heavier, more expensive car. And Ford always wanted to make a car that you know, could be affordable to the masses. He, he really mm -hmm. believed in that. And so I think you know, he's reacting against uh, the whole kind of financial world in a way that you know, sort of makes sense given his trajectory. But then what goes wrong is that he begins to associate the financial world with a particular religious background. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because we did an interview, I think it was back in February, on George Washington Carver. Uh, it was on our Jefferson Highway show because his birthplace is in Missouri. And there's, it's actually the very first national monument for African-Americans um, is uh, his place. And we started looking at his history as, as a farmer, as a botanist. 
um, trying to teach people that you can use what you have for more things than one use. And, you know, he was a, he was an educator. I mean, he, George Washington Carver is like just one of my favorite people too. And then digging into the history, we had a gentleman on uh, who portrays him as a one act um, play. And he was talking about his, his relationship with Ford. So he, he, you know, as he was learning more and more and more and teaching people and doing all these things, he started to become friends with Henry Ford. And that made a lot of African-American people who thought he was standing up for them. Why are you friends with Ford now? Now you're becoming one of them. And that became an issue. So it's, it's interesting because it is, you can't just say a person is just this way. It's complex. You know, relationships it's are complicated complex. and complex. They always are. And I think Ford had a lot of those different relationships, yet was complex. And like what you're saying with the anti-Semitism part, which is unfortunate. But then at the same time, his friend, I think they were trying to communicate on more science and things. And George Washington Carver was trying to help, you know, Black people rise up with banking and things like that. So I think in a way he was, it's weird because he was so good about people, justice, social justice, but then there he is, you know, that is wild. Hmm. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, everyone who knew Ford personally seems to have liked him. I mean, it was really odd um, because he doesn't hmm. seem like the most socially adept person, um, but, you know, for, for whatever reason, I mean, Burroughs was incredibly fond of him. And, hmm. you know, I think I, I was sort of thinking about what these road trips meant in general, and I talk, you know, a little bit about some of the things that come out of them. There, you know, there's also uh, just thinking about conservation. Uh, in the 1918 trip, this party can't possibly pass a grist mill, like an abandoned water wheel driven mill, without stopping to look at it. And mm -hmm. that's because Ford, you know, in company of people like Burroughs, is is becoming more and more interested in water power and um, getting away from big factories that are sort of belching out smoke and forcing people to be concentrated into cities in order to be employed. So all through that trip, it, it, it I mean, I became self-conscious in writing about it because so many times I write, you know, oh, and then they saw a mill and they stop and, you know, Ford takes everyone over to like climb on the water wheel and explore the mill. And Ford is calculating how much uh, power mm -hmm. that mill could produce if he got it working again. And so at, after this trip, Ford, or on the course of the trip, I guess he's formulating this idea for something he called village industries. And mm. what he wanted to do was take the, these old grist mills, convert them to small factories that would be driven by water power. They mm -hmm. would be just by nature in rural communities because the, those are the communities the mills had served. And it would give a kind of lifeline to farmers by giving them employment in the off season. So, you know, you get away from centralized manufacturing, you uh, sure. sort of pump a new lifeblood into rural farming communities. And, you know, that, I mean, I think this would be an amazing thing to have happening today. Ford actually did it. I, uh, just after the 1918 trip, he starts this program. I think the first one of these he bought is at a place called Nankin Mills. And he took an old grist mill and converted it in, into a factory to produce a certain valve for the Model T. So each factory would produce just one little component, and then they would be shipped somewhere to assemble the, 
the car. Mm. And through the course of the next 20 or so years, he opens up sort of depending on how you define them between 20 and 30 of these village industries plants. Wow. And he actually on the 1919 trip in which the campers go up um, into the Adirondacks and then across Vermont and down through New Hampshire, they stopped first at um, Green Island on the Hudson where Ford is opening up a plant like this in which he takes a kind of dam across a part of the Hudson and builds a tractor plant next to it. And he actually has Burroughs and Edison and Firestone chisel their initials in the cornerstone for this to sort of commemorate that this is an idea that came out of their travels together. Mm. This is amazing. I mean, now he's mm -hmm. got Edison though, right? When he's looking at these mills, did Edison go like, hell, I wanna go look at this. <laughs> Shine a light on that. I mean- Yeah, Edison was, I mean, yeah, Edison was also into this idea. And in fact, the the site at Green Island is one that Edison had alerted Ford to because Edison had a, a manufacturing plant of some kind near there and he liked to fish in that area and he had spotted the dam but the dam the dam was already built but it was not being used to generate uh, water power hydroelectric power and so uh. Ford and Edison together could not let that happen you know yeah. it was just a, a waste as they saw it and so uh Edison sort of helps Ford track down uh, the owner of this, and you know they Ford winds up building this plant there, and that the the so these these village industries plants grew all through the 30s, and a number of them opened mm. during the Great Depression. You know when they really were a lifeline to farmers because um, you know it was very hard to make a living farming mm -hmm. at that time. But after Ford's death. Uh, these things started to close down. I think the last one to close was the Nankin Mills site, which was actually the first to open. And that closed sometime in the 80s, I think maybe around 81. Hmm. Um, but the Green Island facility, although the tractor plant closed down, the hydroelectric plant is still generating power there that's used by the community in that area. Cool. Wow, this is fascinating because when you think about road trips, and here it is, our first road trip radio show, like that is actually built that way that we've done tons of road trip shows. But when you think about the power of a road trip, right? Mm. Um, there's the that um, excitement and that freedom. There's a personal freedom you get out of it, and especially if you have not overplanned it. There's, I'm just saying, sometimes you just got to let it happen. Um, <laughs> If you, if I, it really, it's true. And they did that. They didn't know where they were going to camp half the time, you know? It's yeah, like, they rarely, they rarely did. I mean, Edison, who, it was Edison who, you know, planned the itineraries for all these, but, uh, you know, it was a sort of seat of the pants thing. And Edison would ride in the passenger seat of uh, his car, which was a simplex touring car. And he had, he had a driver, um, but he would ride in the passenger seat with, the geological survey maps open on his lap and oh. the, the mm -hmm. automobile blue book, uh, which I don't think we've talked about, but that was another of my sources for this. Really? Um, is I Kelly's? Learned... Like, was it Kelly's at that it, time or no? It, it was called the automobile blue book and they, mm -hmm. they published them for various regions every year. And if you think about it, these had to be incredibly detailed because the there's no infrastructure for long distance travel like this. You know, you have pretty good roads in the cities, but very poor roads for getting between cities. And they're not signposted because 
you know, they're mm -hmm. mostly used by farmers who are trying to get the harvest to the mill or whatever. And so the, the blue book gave incredibly detailed itineraries. Like if you want to get from this town to that town, here's how you do it. And it oh. would be down to the micro level. So when you come wow. to this fork in the road, uh, you're going to see a stone horse watering trough and you want to bear left, you know, and so they're really detailed. And because I had itineraries that Firestone recorded after each trip, I could see what towns they were passing through and actually figure out which of these blue book itineraries they were on, which allowed me to really follow their, their progress turn by turn oh. almost. And at the same time, you can imagine with people this well-known passing through these small towns, uh, every newspaper records their, you know, their, their passage through their town yeah, and, and exactly. newspapers. And eventually, you know, reporters are tracking them saying, you know, oh, Ford and Edison are expected to be here. We think they might arrive tomorrow afternoon, you know, and so that uh, wow. by putting together all of these sources, mm. you know, the, the maps and guidebooks and newspaper reporting, Burroughs' journal, Firestone's narrative, um, letters from Burroughs and occasional uh, letters from Ford, telegrams, you know, because they're constantly sending telegrams back to their business operations. And like, so I, when I first started this book, and this was true of the previous book too, I thought, you know, because I want to do this in a kind of novelistic narrative way, mm -hmm. I really yeah, need a, a lot of information. And in both cases, I basically panicked for a year or two thinking I'll never get enough information. And I just, as you keep digging, I actually wound up with too much information in both cases. You know, there's just, uh, there, there's so much uh, to put together. To I, I want, I want the, I want the blue book thing because now, so I wonder, like I was, I would immediately go to Kelly's blue book, like for values of cars, but now I wonder if they, their name came from that. And then you got to think about what became a triple you know, A, you know, after all the, you know, with the maps and all of that, you know, um, I don't know if people go to their triple A store anymore and go get their maps and things plotted out. Yeah, the trip, tip, um, right? Yeah, yeah. I wonder. You know, it's now. But, I mean, it's it, it's easier to have a little is... bit of spontaneity now with we have GPS and we have cell phones and and you know. So I, I know our tourism people are going to get mad what I said. Like, have that spontaneity and don't overplan. But if you follow certain routes and stuff, you you give yourself that breather to do have those memories be made and do things like pull over at the grist mill. So right. it's interesting to me how a road trip can spur industry. Salespeople, traveling salespeople, know back roads and no roads and diners, I think more than travelers, like traveling salespeople, delivery people, um, people who are on the road for a living, know all these, they know the best restrooms. They know, I'm serious, that's a real deal on, on road trips, trust me, <laughs> I can tell you, who does not have rest areas? I can tell you where you need to get gas in this country before you think you don't need to. Don't wait till the quarter. No, don't do it in certain places, especially New Mexico. Um, oh. So seriously, Northern New Mexico, you better you go pee pee when you you when you have an ability you, to. Yeah, because as soon as you miles. see the pee pee place and the and, and the gas, and you better do it with gas. You better. Yep, fill yep. Up. Whenever you get those opportunities in certain areas, um, you better mm -hmm. do it. Um, so yeah, don't, don't leave too much to chance, but to me, that's the, the, the most exciting thing. It's kind of like when Seinfeld, that episode of Seinfeld where Kramer drove the, was it a UPS truck or something? 
and yeah. it went on the the empty light and they went to see how far you could go on the empty light or the gas i'm like that's it that's what road trips are about but your story is just like this you know all these different characters like were true legends in history and in for so many different reasons inventions nature science business getting together those communications planning researching and developing and so road trips and conservation like you're saying too conservation of buildings conservation of nature road trips do so much and it expands our mind it's also humbling because you go through places and learn things that you go wow you know it it's good to take a breather from the news and all of that which is important to know about but to actually remember when you cross the country and you go on these smaller byways especially to connect with people actual people and when you do it doesn't really matter about what political party anymore have those conversations have that small town america experience because it still does exist it's beautiful and it's amazing and i think your your book brings us back to that spirit of what america can still be do you think that when you're yeah, writing I, this that kind of i'm not trying to romanticize it but you know what i mean there's a good feeling about it right well it, i think there is a kind of romance to anything that's in its infancy and road travel was in its infancy you know and all the things we kind of today associate with the road trip you know the roadside culture of motels and uh, gas stations and uh, rest stops, rest areas. Um, none of that, of course, existed. You know, there was it was difficult to get gas, and in fact, especially difficult in 1918 because uh, the First World mm. War. The U.S. had now joined the First World War, and so there were you know there was gas rationing, and sometimes it was very difficult for this group to get gas mm -hmm. to get to the next town. Um, but there was also no no. Uh, kind of support, you know, there were garages in, in towns and cities, um, but there wasn't sort of roadside assistance of any kind. And so often when these cars broke down, it was Henry Ford, you know, at this point, one mm -hmm. of the richest men in the country who climbs out of the car, rolls up his sleeves, gets underneath and figures out what's, what's mm -hmm. going on. And I mean, there's one amazing moment and they're there. They had just started the 1918 trip. So I think this is their second day so they've come from Pittsburgh, spent the night in a town in the mountains outside Pittsburgh, and then um, they're approaching a town called Connellsville, and the Packard that Harvey Firestone had and that Ford was riding in that day broke down, and it turned out that the cooling fan had broken, and one of the iron arms of the cooling fan had pierced the radiator. So Ford gets out and manages to, you know, sort of get this patched up enough to get into the town of Connellsville. They get there, find a garage, the mechanics look at it and say, there's no way to repair this. You know, we'll have to <laughs> order replacement parts. And so- And they're talking to Ford. <laughs> right, exactly. So again, Ford says, well, you know, give me a chance. And he starts looking around the garage and he's just like taking things, you know, off uh, workbenches mm. and off the wall and like finding things he can can use. He wires the fan back together, solders the um, the radiator, and within two hours they're ba they're back on the road. And, mm, amazing, you know that at this point uh, the head of the shipping boy board was a man named Edward Hurley was traveling with them just for a day or two, and he wrote about this, 
and he said that you know Ford took this moment that could have really destroyed a road trip. I mean, he wouldn't have called it a road trip, but could have destroyed a trip like this. And he turned it into the, you know, the highlight of the trip. Like everybody was, mm -hmm. you know, talking about how, um, how wonderful this was that he was able to make the repairs so quickly. Well, don't we say that, Nancy? I mean, even through Africa, mm. if you didn't break down in the middle of the bush, like you didn't you have didn't, a proper road trip. You didn't have you didn't, a road trip. Yeah, I you remember have one to, time. You have to break down. Yeah, we, we broke down. We were changing a flat tire. And I don't oh, know if it gosh. was Masai Mara where we were. Oh, and here we were, and it took a couple hours. I mean, it, and in at that time, there was like, you know, sanctions and bans on things. So literally, you did patch mm -hmm. your tires, right? And drive with, on them. You know what? You, I patched tires with bicycle tire patches. I, there's all kinds of stuff we did nuts. to, to rig nuts. things. So yeah, we go around the bend, like literally around the corner. And here we are outside the car carrying on. There was a pride of lions. You think we're not <laughs> going to remember that? Like, seriously. Yeah. And they were watching us like, you idiots. They're like, look, look at these humans those humans. Do. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. But um, I, I just, I love what you've written. And I, as you can tell, I'm a little bit overpassionate about it because it's so exciting. And I had no idea. And I can't wait to finish the book and for everyone to read it and go get it. Um, mm -hmm. I do want to close because I want to give a shout out to our friends over at the Lion and the Rose Bed and Breakfast in Asheville, North Carolina. Talking about writers and, and geniuses getting together. This city, Asheville, North Carolina, is a hub of creativity. Everyone from F. Scott Fitzgerald to Thomas Wolfe, O. Henry, Zelda Fitzgerald, um, Warren Haynes, a musician. I always got to give him a shout out. Um, so if you go to Asheville, go to lion-rose.com. And they're outside the Smoky Mountains, which includes one of the road trips, right? That area got mm -hmm. into the book. That's right. In fact, the, uh, it's Asheville that's the final destination of the 1918 trip. That's the, cool. the Grove Park Inn in Asheville is where they spend their last night together. Do you know that it's haunted? Oh, is that right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I do believe so. Yeah. I think it was on our, we went on the Gray Line trolley tour. They yeah. go outside the Grove. It's haunted. No, the Grove Inn is a big mm -hmm. deal. There's it's stories haunted. of massacres and all kinds of stuff. Not massacre. I shouldn't say that. That's not the. You have to talk to Uncle Ted from Grayline. Um, everyone, the if you go in our October show, you'll hear about the haunted mysteries of Asheville because Asheville is like the downtown. You're walking on dead people that were all buried underneath ah, these certain streets. Well, because you know there was you know things happened and they didn't have graveyards at that time. Like enough places. Um, there was illness that went through. Well, they and just they buried they just people. Built over. But the grove, I didn't that's people. amazing. So, oh, see, now I have to get to the end of the book. I have to. <laughs> see? So um everyone uh, again, the book is out now. It's by Wes Davis. It's called American Journey on the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs. Uh, it is out now, so get it where all your books are. Do you have a website for everyone to go to, or I, should they I just don't... go to this site? I don't oh. have a website, but it's all in the book. All right, everyone, go check it out. Thank you so much. Now keep up with our brand new show, our Big Blend Radio Road Trip Show. Uh, go to bigblendradio.com. We will air this every fourth Monday. And who knows where we're going next month. Thanks so much, Wes. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm looking forward to the book about your travels. Uh-oh. <laughs> we'll call <laughs> you to write it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>